Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my unedited conversation with poet Jane Hirschfield. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Okay, how's this? Okay, I'll try to stay where I am. I Hi, certainly Jane. am. Hi, Krista. <laughs> Don't get stiff. Just <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that's that's why we chat for a minute before we get rolling is to get our voices yeah. tuned. Yeah. <laughs> Are you happy, Zach? Okay. We yeah, want you happy. You've, you've learned that that's really the most important thing here. That Zach well, is happy, it's a good and that everything sign. else will follow. <laughs> Hello, where are you? I am in Mill Valley on the hem of Mount Tamalpais. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Do you live in Mill Valley? I do. I've lived here, uh, I've lived in Marin since 1979 and in my house since 1984. It's like a secret center of the universe, Mill Valley. I was actually just there last week. I just I'm so startled every whatever everybody I've learned who lives in Mill Valley. <laughs> well, I suppose it would be very rude of me to ask who you were visiting. <laughs> well, I was actually there twice. I was with Ivy Ross. Uh-huh. Don't know Ivy Ross. You do? I don't. She's a designer and she's a she's a Google now, but she's done many, many things. And then I was with Tiffany Schlein. Yes, for I Shabbat know Tiffany. Dinner. I know. Oh, you were, well, that's where we met the one time we did. Was it one of her Shabbat dinners? Oh, oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. A few I years ago now. I completely forgot that. <laughs> yeah, um, but I feel like I was with somebody else who was from there. But anyway, yeah. It's well, I for, Yeah, I completely was spacing out that you lived there. Um, well, I'm so glad we're here. And I am as well. Thank you. Um, it's, you know, I just, I, I listen to your conversations and I just think nobody asks at the same level of question or engages at the same depth as you do. So it's a great pleasure to finally, um, after we had talked about it at that Shabbat dinner all those years ago. Yeah. So here we are. Well, what I remember is we were together, was it at the Lincoln Center for that um, no, no, it's the only time I've ever met you. Did it? Weren't we together at the? Um, oh gosh, what was it? That that event that they used to do, the National Poetry Society. Am I? Am I? The am Academy I, of American Academy Poets. Academy of American no. Poets. No, I wasn't there. You I was invited, there? but I wasn't. Okay. I wasn't able to I come. I thought. I thought we were all right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Here we are. <laughs> yes. Um. Uh, I also. Bring greetings from Maria Popova and love. She was so happy to hear that I was speaking with you. Well, thank you. And I have used the marvelous microphone you sent me to record a poem she just asked me to tape. Oh, good. <laughs> so it will sound extra good because so of good. your participation. <laughs> oh, I love that. Um, you know, um, I want to do this a little differently. I mean, it's not like... It's I, I've I, you know I think a conversation takes the shape that belongs to 
the conversation to be had and the conversation partner. So it's not like there's a format, but um, but I I want to have I have some questions for you and some things I want to probe, and then um, I really just want to kind of have a conversation with poetry. Um, I've anyway, so we'll get to that, but. Um, Good and yeah, and but another another kind of um, this is this is an unusual way for me to start an interview. But I was so struck by um, some things you said in in another in an interview in another interview. Um, and I don't know if you're like me, you don't remember what you say in a situation like that. You probably don't go back and read the interviews you've given. So you may not remember these words coming out of your mouth, but they feel, I just kind of want to read them back to you because it feels like such a wonderful framing um, for why, why I'm in conversation with you. And um, and I think, I think that's something you and I both deeply care about. Um, um, which is the fullness of things. So you said, it's my nature to question, to look at the opposite side. I believe mm. that the best writing also does this. The best art does this. It tells us that where there is sorrow, there will be joy. Where there is joy, there will be sorrow. Um, sometimes the other side is so deeply buried, you really have to part the grasses of a poem to find it. But you said, I would say that in a good poem, that second dimension is always there. There is always something startling and absolutely unexpected, some undertow, some magnetic pull of a fuller truth. The acknowledgement of the fully complex scope of being is why good art thrills. I keep coming back to this idea. Acknowledging the fullness of things is our human task. I love that, the fully complex scope of being and that the fullness of things is our human task. I'm very grateful for those words you spoke. Well, thank you, and I still agree with them. <laughs> um, you're right, I never do remember anything that I have said before. Yeah. Um, I'm, always, I'm always making my, my words up from scratch yeah. because I have the memory of a large old colander. <laughs> um. <laughs> but what matters is that your consciousness kind of poured out through your words um, and yeah. that answer. So I so let's so let's use that as our frame, and I want to kind of explore the fullness of things and the fullness of of you and your way of thinking and seeing and writing. I, I'm very intrigued that um, I notice that um, whenever you are are your your bio is given, and I have to think you're behind this. It always it begins with Jane Hirschfield was born on East Twentieth Street in New York City. <laughs> Well, actually, no, I'm not behind that. You're whoever, not? whoever wrote the Wikipedia pieces yeah. behind it. Um, that's how they like to start things, I think, and then other people pick it up from there. Um, but I do. But see I was you, yeah, born and on I do East Twentieth Street, and I do see you mentioning East Twentieth Street a lot. I mean, I just, I just wonder what, what is that? What, 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 what will we know about you from understanding more about East Twentieth Street in the New York City you grew up in? Uh, well, we will know the great paradox of my life, which is uh, born and raised in New York City, and yet somehow from the earliest memory I have, I longed for the wilder world. Um, and I, 
I it is it is interesting to me that you know all the great gifts of the city, the museums, the music, the culture, um, the busyness, the 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 simple complexity of it. Uh, my earliest memory is of the first time I was taken into the country. Uh, hmm. My parents told me I was two years old. I'm lying on my back in the grass uh, with a dark, tall hedge behind me and the taste of blackberry in my mouth. Hmm. <laughs> but, you know, East 20th Street is its, is its own part of New York. It was actually... Um, Many people will know uh, Peter Cooper Village in Stuyvesant Town, those those MetLife developments, mm. which were built after the Second World War for uh, veterans to move into and raise their families. Mm. So it was a pretty nice project, but nonetheless, it was a housing project. Mm -hmm. And as such, fairly soulless. Mm. Um, when I was 18, I had a dream where someone rather important to me, said, why do you write poetry? And I thought for a moment, and in the dream I had a very distinct vision of these red brick buildings and concrete and tiny little scraps of grass from which you were kept by chain link fence. And I answered with that in my mind, because everything is alive. Hmm. And it took me a long time to realize what a paradox there was in that vision of uniform, uh, human-made right. brick, and that something in me was saying, even in there, everything is alive. Mm. And you know, I'm 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 always interested in in the religious and spiritual background of of a childhood, and it's so interesting because you you spent you actually in your life. Um, spent time as a Zen monk. Um, you grew up, um, and tell me if this is not right, Jewish, but with no religious instruction, although you had a grandfather who was a mystic. Yes. <laughs> as always, you've done your background reading. <laughs> so my parents, I, I think of it now as they seemed very surprised when I didn't turn out to be particularly Jewish. And they, they, they never trained me. They sort of forgot to tell me anything. And when I was a, a child, that vision of uh, what lies behind reality, the Judeo-Christian um, basic setup of a divine person as a child understands it, it never made the least bit of sense to me. So it never took. Hmm. And yet, one of my few memories from childhood, which must reflect the expression on my mother's face when I said this to her, is that we were walking along, you know, in, inside the project, and I suddenly uh, turned to her and looked up and said, you know, it's a real pity we aren't Catholic because now I can never be a nun. <laughs> and you can imagine, you know, how that must have sounded to her. And also it sounds like it, for her, probably came out of nowhere. Well, right. And for uh, me, it obviously came out of nowhere. It, and what I think is kind uh -huh. of remarkable is that, you know, maybe 20 years after that, I was, in fact, living in a monastery, having a life of dedicated, concentrated, singular focus on something that mattered a great deal to me. It just didn't happen to be Catholic. 
So I'm just so curious. I'm just so interested in that. Um, you know what? How that how that refer, mani- is a manifestation of of your interior world already in that very young body. Yeah, I'm I'm quite baffled in retrospect when I look at everything that interested in me mm-hmm. that interested me throughout my life from childhood on. It is almost as though I was dowsing for the worldview and the life that I ended up entering. Mm. Because, for example, the first book that I ever bought when I was about eight years old with my own allowance was one of those Peter Popper Press $1 books of Japanese haiku. Yeah, and you bought so that on, very a, first on East 20th I, Street, right? Yes, on, on, <laughs> on, uh, from a stationery store that had mm-hmm. one of those wire circular racks up mm-hmm. near the front door. Mm-hmm. And that was what I went to. And, you know, I don't know now, when I look back, what does an eight-year-old understand when she reads Japanese haiku? Yeah. It can't be what I find in them now. And yet, something magnetized me. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes people call you um, a Zen poet, and and I think you I think you also kind of resist that label. It it seems to me, and I don't, I don't think this quite gets at it either. But it seems to me that a better way to say it might be that the kind of sensibility and values of Zen and of the enterprise of poetry <laughs> converge so elegantly and winsomely kind of in your person, in your voice? Well, I would say that's that's fairly accurate. I don't like being called a Zen poet because I think any label that is put on anyone creates a kind of limitation of understanding. Mm -hmm. I don't think that we live our lives or write our poems within the boundaries of such a narrow thing as a single adjective, even an adjective as immense as Zen is. I think that the life and the poetry both come out of, you know, every moment I've spent on this earth, breathing, looking around, washing dishes, sitting in meditation for many years. Um, All of that is simply who I am. And the poems are going to come out of who I am. And I don't want them to have an agenda. I don't want to know in advance what I'm going to be writing about, what my relationship to the world is going to be before those words emerge to instruct me in what my relationship to the world deeply is as I try to go past the perimeter of my own knowing. And of course, the other reason that I resist being called a Zen poet is because anyone who actually practices Zen would resist being called a Zen anything. Right, right. Because, you yeah. know, it's not supposed to be about labels. Yeah, it's just or like identity. I'm always suspicious of anyone who calls himself a mystic. I think, well, you're not. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let me, let me ask the question this way that, that, that thing that, that essence of reality that you were dowsing for, even as a very, very young girl. Um, how would you start to talk about what it was that you found in Zen that mm. met that search in you? 
I think what I was looking for was an unmediated intimacy with things as they actually are, and perhaps a correct, terrible word, people have such associations to it, but an accurate understanding of what is the place of this self that we all walk around inside of and know the world through. It is indispensable and radiant and opulent and comic. But I was looking for a way of being in the world that didn't make my own skin such an important thing. Mm. I wanted to know the world. I wanted to be permeable. And the actual practice of Zen for me, all those years when I was in formal training, a great deal of that, I think, was about the courage and the experimentation to simply sit down and be permeable to the world. Hmm. The inner world, the outer world, the world of events and stories, the world of a single bird song as the light comes up, becoming the entirety of existence. Hmm. There's a, another convergence in you and that runs through your poetry and I would say in your fascinations, which is with science and especially biology, but also physics. Um, would you say a little bit about how that, um, I mean, even I just heard you use the word experimentation, right? That yes. experimentation, which um, is another thing that is, that, that's also in the, in the, um, act of writing a poem, or certainly in the scientific enterprise? Well, I have found over my life that I have become more and more in love with knowing the world in multiple ways. And the procedures and the elegance and the passionate curiosity of the sciences is something I have just become increasingly engaged with. Most of my closest friends now are research scientists, mm. um, as many as our poets, as many as our practitioners of Zen. And I do think you have named it correctly when you say, you know, both are activities of curiosity, experimentation, and the the search for an expanded perimeter of existence and of knowledge. So, you know, a scientist has to be quite willing to fail, for instance. You have a hypothesis, but it could be wrong. And so you test that hypothesis and you find out. And if it is wrong, you conjure another. Writing poems is very much the same way. Hmm. Um, I don't know what I will end up discovering in a poem, but I know if I have not made some discovery... If I do not leave a poem a changed person than when I entered it, it's not really a poem. It's a failed draft. I think that possibility of failure is also is in science, um, certainly in the spiritual life, and it's in um, it's in the writing of a poem. It's it's in it's it's at the essence of that that thing that you that you knew you were intrigued by um, 
And these are that all being alive, hunger- right? What it is yes, to be alive. Yes, exactly, exactly. And these are all hungers to know. And mm. I love the word mm. know because, you know, it has both its uh, abstract and cognitive sense of, you know, the explorations of the objective world, um, but it also has the inner sense of gnosis, of the mystical knowing. And then it also has, which is a very important part of all of this landscape we're discussing, it has the biblical carnal sense. It has the knowing that can only be found through the body. Mm -hmm. And each of these different ways of exploring the world and feeling the world is incomplete unless the others are also present. Mm. And, you know, the other reason I love the sciences is simply because it's such a delicious lexicon. It has (laughs) such a fantastic vocabulary Mm. of understanding. And I stumbled into it, you know, quite early, before I knew I was going to be spending my life uh, partly around scientists and engaged in the conjunction of poetry and science. Um, In 1982, the very earliest poem that I wrote that I still have a living relationship with, um, the metaphors of physics Hmm. came into the poem. Um, And and so... You don't have that with you, do you? uh, Yeah, I probably do. Okay. Just a second. If you do, I'd love to hear. It's actually, it's one of my only poems I have memorized, but I don't want to watch it. Okay. (laughs) So we'll find it. Um, So the poem, I never know when I read this if I should call it a love poem or an end of love poem because it began as both of those things. Okay. (laughs) For what binds us? There are names for what binds us. Strong forces, weak forces. Look around, you can see them. The skin that forms in a half-empty cup, nails rusting into the places they join, joints dovetailed on their own weight. The way things stay so solidly wherever they've been set down, and gravity, scientists say, is weak. And see how the flesh grows back across a wound with a great vehemence, more strong than the simple, untested surface before. There's a name for it on horses when it comes back darker and raised. Proud flesh, as all flesh is proud of its wounds, wears them as honors given out after battle, small triumphs pinned to the chest. And when two people have loved each other, see how it is like a scar between their bodies, stronger, darker, and proud. How the black cord makes of them a single fabric that nothing can tear or mend. Thank you. You're welcome. And you know, I didn't know much about physics when those strong forces and weak forces yes. left into the poem. And the poem was written when I was shattered at the ending of my first great love of, of some years. Mm-hmm. And it simply, you know, it saved me because I was truly in pieces. And at four in the morning, that poem woke me up, 
and I wrote it. Mm. It's one of those ones that was written as if by dictation. Mm. And the way at the end, you know, you began by speaking about uh, the two sides of the fabric, that nothing can tear or mend. Yes, nothing can tear or mend, yeah. And it turned out to be true. That first love and I, we did not become lovers again, but we knew each other all the rest of his life mm. until he died in 2016. Hmm. You know, I, um, I'm also fascinated with physics and have spent enough time in conversation about physics to also have know some of the vocabulary, right? I mean, I know strong yes. forces and weak forces, and I don't claim to be able to comprehend it. And yet, you're right, the language itself, and even, I don't know, and then hearing it in, that, in the poem is really, really, really wonderful. No. Thank you. So in March 2020, uh, your book of poetry called Ledger was published by Knopf. Um, it was published on March 10th, <laughs> as you've written, the day that everything after was canceled. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, what's really, what I would really like to do um, for the rest of our time here is pretty much kind of play around and speak around in the poetry here. Um, it's, you know, it's pretty fascinating to think about. So, yes, of course, it was published on March March. 10th, 2020. But what that means it was is that it was written before that, right? And yes. yet emerged with a moment that in some in 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 is going to be with us for the rest of our lifetimes. Um, and speaks speaks to this this world we've we've entered, that um, this world we're in. And um you know, somewhere you wrote, you you were you were pondering what art, what a poem can probe, how, and and these were two questions you named, and I, I just feel like there are two questions so alive, and they're so alive in me, they're so alive in our world. Um, how can we navigate, and also how can we open our eyes to the next day? Mm -hmm. And. I would love to just start by two two very distinct ways into that, um, two kind of two kind of different directional entryways into that. And I, but I actually want to start by asking you to read the second poem in the book, which, um, not the first. And we're going to read the second and then the first. But okay. But the bowl. Um, yes. Uh, yeah. Would you just read that? And I, to okay. me, this feels so. It just feels like such a. It just captures this, um, this synergy we were talking about uh, between um, the spirit of Zen, the spirit of of, of of the of the enterprise of poetry, the urge to write poetry, all of that. Yes, and the and the spirit of trying to figure out a way to take the next breath and yeah. enter the next day. Yeah, um, very much was behind the writing of this. Mm. The bowl. If meat is put into the bowl. Meat is eaten. If rice is put into the bowl, it may be cooked. If a shoe is put into the bowl, the leather is chewed and chewed over, a sentence that cannot be taken in or forgotten. A day, if a day could feel, must feel like a bowl. 
Wars, loves, trucks, betrayals, kindness, it eats them. Then the next day comes, spotless and hungry. The bull cannot be thrown away. It cannot be broken. It is calm, uneclipsable, rindless, and big though it seems, fits exactly in two human hands. Hands with ten fingers, fifty-four bones, capacities strange to us, almost past measure. Scented, as the curve of the bowl is, with cardamom, star anise, long pepper, cinnamon, hyssop. You said that this for you was about walking into the next day. Yeah. Um, So this book, the first poem in time that went into this book is the next one I think you're going to ask me to read. The the sort of prologue poem. But that was written in 2014. And that was written as the first of a current series of poems I had written about the climate catastrophe and the perils and crisis of the biosphere, probably in every one of my books going all the way back. But of course, knowledge has become more urgent, more precise, more demanding of our attention. And our experience of that has become more urgent, more Well, it has become something no longer in the future. That's right. That it is now our present. We live in it every day. I breathe its smoke every every summer and fall. But the other thing which was happening over the course of the years of writing this book was also, of course, uh, the uh, 2016 election and the ensuing four years. And so... Uh, the the murder of George Floyd, the political, uh, the the way a fracture that was always in our earth and always giving us uh, temblers became earthquake. Yeah, became something in which you could see the buildings literally falling down around us and old ideals shattering, old hopes being so deeply challenged. And so, you know, this poem of, of uh, the bowl, that is our existence, that is our life. Slightly behind it is the idea of um, the, the bowl that Buddhist monks in Asian countries uh, carry in what in Japan is called takahatsu, the practice of begging. Mm-hmm. So you would go out from the monastery every morning with your empty bowl, go from household to household, and if the community in which your temple existed, if people didn't think you were worth feeding, you would go hungry. And so that is, you know, if so Buddhist monks are supposed to be vegetarian, but if meat is put into the bowl, mm. meat is eaten. Mm. Um, but that then becomes, far beyond that, my sense of, I have been given this life. I have been given this existence, these years on this earth, to accept what has come into my lifetime. Wars, loves, trucks, betrayals, Mm. kindness. I must take them. Mm. I must find a way to live in this world. You can't refuse it. And along with the difficult is the radiant, the beautiful, the scent of the herbs. 
right. the cardamom, star anise, long pepper, cinnamon, hyssop that cover all of the spices of the globe. And our hands, our yeah. 54 bones, our 10 fingers, the intimacy with which each one of us enters the life of all of us and takes what comes to our own door and figures out what is our conversation? What is my responsibility? What must be suffered? What can be changed? What can I know? How can I meet this in a way which both lets me open my eyes the next day and also perhaps, if I'm lucky, can be of service to a changed future? Which is, um, which is a perfect way into, as you say, the poem that is the prologue of the book, um, Let Them Not Say. And I wonder if you would allow me to read this one. And I'd like to oh. ask you to read it at the end. Thank you. I'd love that. It almost I'd feels liturgical to, to me. It feels like yes. a confession that yes. I also want to make that you put into words. Um, it's so present again. Um, you know, actually, a lot of things. A lot, I'm not a, a writer like you, but I, I do write. And a lot of things I wrote years ago, people have said, well, what were you thinking of? W weren't things all right then? So, <laughs> but, you know, so this poem... Um, this was true years ago when you wrote it. As you, when did you say? 2014? Yes. Um, I just think there's a way in which some of this is just more vivid, oh, yes. more unavoidable, ununseeable. Um, yes. And it feels like it speaks directly to the present. So, um, yeah, let them not say, let them not say we did not see it. We saw. Let them not say we did not hear it. We heard. Let them not say they did not taste it. We ate. We trembled. Let them not say it was not spoken, not written. We spoke. We witnessed with voices and hands. Let them not say they did nothing. We did not enough. Let them say, as they must say something, a kerosene beauty, it burned. Let them say we warmed ourselves by it, read by its light, praised, and it burned. You can give all of my readings for me from now on. <laughs> that was beautifully read. Thank can you. I just say that when I read this, I said it out loud to myself, right? I, I it, yeah. Yeah. So it is a poem very much imagining the future, looking back on our generation, our time, and seeing how did it turn out? What did we do? What did we not do? And it is a prayer. It is a poem hoping to make itself someday incomprehensible. Yes. That, you know, yes. if we make it through, if in yeah. 200 years it all turns out all right, I want someone to look back at this poem if they stumble upon it and say, why was she so worried? She was so pessimistic. Yeah. But the writing of the poem was my own way of engaging my own heart, mind, 
body intentions vow to have this poem not be true. Yeah. And so, yes, very much a poem of this moment of great uncertainty. We don't know yet how it will turn out, and I do not want them to say, we did not enough. That word you put, not enough, is with a hyphen. It's right. Yes. It's not enough is a substance. Um, you know, what this spoke to very immediately for me is uh, I've recently been having some conversations about trauma. And um, I'm sure you're familiar with this phrase, moral injury. Yes. That comes from, it, it, it emerged, I believe, as, you know, originally used out of a situation of war, um, the, this deep, deep distress that can be caused um, when human beings witness or participate in something that profoundly goes against their own beliefs and values. And I have been pondering that and feeling like to be alive now, to be a person with the kind of um, safety and comfort I have, even in a time which I would describe as very hard and unpleasant and, and frightening, but to be alive now, to be an American now, um, is to be in a constant state of moral injury. Um, in terms of what is happening to the natural world, um, the distorted relationship we've had to it, which is now coming, coming full circle. Um, also in terms of uh, just, I mean, you know, you know what I'm saying. I, I, oh, I know completely <laughs> what you're saying. The racial reckoning that is yet yes, really yes. to happen. Yes. Um, the, um, and even, and especially, um, not all of it, but even, you know, this, what I think of as late capitalism, you know, I want to think that 200 years from now, I, I know that this is not sustainable where we are now, that we have an economy yes. that doesn't work for most people. Yes, yes. We need to find a way for the dignity inherent in every human being to not be smothered by a system that chooses some and lets others fall by the wayside. Yeah, right. And, right. you know, this poem became for me, it changed my life to have written it. Mm -hmm. Because, so I wrote it thinking of the crisis of the biosphere, thinking of the creatures and beings and plants and beauty of the, of the living world. But it was published. I held on to it. I knew it had work to do. And so I didn't just send it out. I held on to it for two years. And then uh, the Academy of American Poets got in touch with me in, in the end of 2015. And they said, you know, uh, we'd like to run a special poem for our poem of the day for New Year's. Do you mm -hmm. have something? And I answered, I don't think I have a New Year's poem, but I, nobody has seen this. I, you know, let me know what you think. But I think I have a poem that would be right for uh, the inauguration day in 2016. Yeah. And they ran it that day. And um, I was told that no poem they'd ever run had circulated as widely as that did. So it became a political poem as well as an environmental poem. And... I became a person for the entire 
you know, four years of that administration, I took a political action every single day. I did something. I made a donation. I wrote letters. I wrote postcards. I wrote comments on government websites. You know, I signed the petitions that mean nothing. But every single day, I took some action, exactly because of what you have just been describing, that it is a, to, to be complacent in a time of such enormous and visible suffering would be to be guilty. And we are guilty. We do, you know, I, I, I use the heat in my house. I put carbon into the atmosphere. And, you know, there's a different poem in the book which, which says that, which says, you know, if this is a painting, I signed it um, because <laughs> right. of how yeah. I live as an American here now. Mm-hmm. No matter how much I try to avoid, you know, using disposable plastics, I am part of the problem. But I also wanted, how I thought of it that entire four years of daily action was I wanted to add one more decibel to the chorus. I could not be silent. And, you know, and I'm still quite active. I'm just not doing something every single day. But, you know, I feel like um, um, this poem, Let Them Not Say, as it has come into the world, published in this book in t- March 2020, um, it's it's so much bigger than a, a political poem, right? It speaks right. to so much more. This is a species moment, and this poem speaks to our species. Um, yes. And it speaks to this century uh, and the existential challenge of this century. Very much so. And that is, you know, I have an earlier uh, book with a poem in it, which is called My Species. Mm. So I love that mm. you use that word, because I think about our species a lot. And I think about how absolutely necessary it is that our species proceed in our cultural evolution a little faster yeah. than we are. Even, I think, our <laughs> spiritual evolution. <laughs> yes. Growing into our consciousness, which we also are being given to understand you know, in a new way, at the very same time, that there's so much to lose. And in the sense of seeing, you know, not just both sides of the fabric, but perhaps all sides of the fabric, because if you're small enough, you're inside the threads looking at them sideways. Um, You know, I think part of that spiritual enlargening that we must find our way to, and I myself must continually every day find my way to, has to do with uh, never feeling rage without feeling equally tenderness Mm. and kinship. Because division is not going to be the path towards a viable planet or a viable social compact. That is also such a... um a theme that runs all the way through your poems. I'm just looking, um, you know, there's this poem, Some Questions, Mm. page 23. Would you read that one? Sure. (laughs) 
That one surprises me as a choice. Does it? Uh, yes, yes. You never know what poems are going to speak to what people, um, which is why if I like a poem, it goes in the book. Well, um, and then someday someone comes back to you and, and talks about a poem no one has ever spoken to you of before. Yeah. I Some think questions. It's spe- yeah, mm. go on. Well, it speaks, to what you, um, it speaks to what you just said to me. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, go on. Some questions. Who first asked it? The sand or the footprint? The remembering or the forgetting? A house, a door, an hour. Which is frame? Which picture? Where found old grief joy? Your salvage yard windows and shutters? Your emergency? Your emergence? Me, you, us, them. What molecule, cell, creature came first to feel it? Was it painful? How came separation to chisel, to cherish, to chafe? Hammock of burning carbon life wove from, hammock life slept in, unraveling, Did you find us useful, interesting, comic? Will you miss them, the cruelty and hunger, the manatees and spoonbills, awe's inexplicable swaying? You know, I think um, what what I what I what 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 came to mind when you when you spoke about. The tenderness and the mm. and the need for that right alongside the rage is um, are these lines of this poem some questions me you us mm. them what molecule cell creature came first to feel it was it painful yeah how came separation to chisel to cherish to chafe yeah. And I think if we enter the world with this sense of inseparable kinship, it gives us a little more tenderness towards our own failures, our failures of separation, our failures of chiseling against one another when we could be cherishing one another. We are a species capable of so many different ways of perceiving our connection and interdependence, and also of perceiving our own transience, because we are transient. Yeah. You know, time will continue. There's, there's also the poem Cataclysm, mm. which, you know, and I think you know, something you've said is that good poems water hope, that they hold the knowledge <laughs> of our shared fate. Um, Shared fate is a very important phrase for me. I've been I've been thinking about it since I was seventeen. What was it when you were seventeen? I made you start thinking about that. um, You know, I only remember one line of a poem I wrote then, but but the line was, "To define the meaning of we, is to find a life of a kind." But who is to say? 
you know, that to me has always, who do we think of when we use the pronoun we? And I want my we to be absolutely continuous amongst my fellow humans, amongst living beings, amongst the largeness of the expanding universe, down to the tiniest physics and particle. I want, I want to feel like part of a single fabric and to behave as if my responsibility is to the entire fabric. And I know there are many people for whom the pronoun we has become quite problematic. Um, you know, the entire area of uh, don't speak for what you have not personally experienced. And I, I respect and honor the pain and the history behind that, but I cannot give up the pronoun we. Yeah, well, I think that's also a reaction to how we, we did we the we the we was was in, was constricted and controlled, right? right. So, well, it was the us them of the yes, poem we were a, just discussing. I mean, that's a move. I mean, cataclysm is one that comes to mind. Is there another poem that you're thinking of as we speak about this that speaks to it? Oh, I haven't got my whole work in okay. in my in my head that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I could read you the My Species poem if you'd like to yeah, hear that. Yeah. But that's from an earlier book. It'll yeah. take me a second to find it. That's from The Beauty. Um, ah, there it is. Um, my Species. Even a small purple artichoke, boiled in its own bittered and darkening waters, grows tender, grows tender and sweet. Patience, I think, my species. Keep testing the spiny leaves, the spiny heart. Do you know anyone who has ever cooked an artichoke? It goes from a bitter, thorny, difficult, inedible thing to something sweet and delicious. And part of me thinks... If we just suffer long enough, will we finally become tender and sweet? If we just stay in those boiling waters long enough, will something in us decide we have had enough? I was once, um, I was in Ireland shortly after uh, one of the beginnings of the end of the Troubles, and I asked a lot of Irish poets, you know, do you think this is going to last? Do you th- what, do, what, what do you think about this? And uh, one of them, Maeve McGookian, said something I've never forgotten, which was, the people had had enough of killing, and the leaders either had to follow or be left behind. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. So would you still like me to read Cataclysm? I can. Would you like to? Why don't you? Sure. Yes. Okay. Cataclysm. It begins subtly. The maple withdraws an inch from the birch tree. The porcupine wants nothing to do with the skink. Fish unschool. Sheep unflock to separately graze. Clouds, meanwhile, declare to the sky they have nothing to do with the sky, which is not visible as they are, 
nor knows the trick of turning into infant tumbling pterodactyls. The turtles in moonlight, their long arrangement is over. As for the humans, let us not speak of the humans. Let us speak of their language. The first person singular condemns the second person plural for betrayals neither has words left to name. The fed consider the hungry and stay silent. You know, there's there's such richness in all the words you have written and are reading. And something that is so deep in this this um, convergent Zen and poetic sensibility is a real reverence for the limits and boundaries of words, right? That you're oh, pointing yes. at what words, in fact, cannot touch. Mm-hmm. Um, but also about, I think, I think what it also highlights, and that's in that poem that you just read. Um, the let us not speak of the humans. Let us speak of their language. Um, the blunt force of words used carelessly, recklessly, even violently. Um, I think that. Um, you know, uh, Harari in the book Sapiens talks about how perhaps our distinguishing mark as a species is what happens when we tell one another stories. And all our language is a story. If you say I, you are not saying we. If you say you, you can mean nine different things by the word you. And I have an hour-long lecture sort of tracing out all the different yous that, that you can find in different poems. And some of them are intimate and some of them are accusatory. And one of them is the capitalized you of the divine, uh, the you between lovers, the you where you're talking to yourself. Mm. And these stories hypnotize and entrance. And part of the job of poetry is to both entrance and at the same time break entrancement. I think reading poems well makes a person not only wiser, but smarter, because the words are being used with such precision. They're mm-hmm. like a well-tuned you know, racing car, where every tiny uh, jutting of, of the material in it is working towards the end of an understanding both what is being said and what is just outside the words. And so if you read a poem with your whole being and your whole attention, which is the only way to read poems, really, you will hear all the unsaid in the white space. It's one reason why poems on the page look strange, why they don't fill the page. They don't fill the page because in that silence around the words, in the white space around the words, is the wisdom. And the completion of the poem is in the person reading it, whether that's the writer Mm. or Mm -hmm. the reader, someone else. A poem is nothing unless it is completed with all of the ingredients of the human heart 
and soul and spirit and language knowledge and the history that is embedded in every word in its in its etymological roots in its usages in its tone whether it's colloquial and jolly or formal or you know skeptical um, all of that when we engage in this way of language that we call poetry I am able to think thoughts I am unable to have any other way which is the only reason that I write a poem I write a poem because I am unable to answer whatever the fracture or bewilderment or question or provocation or or even radiance um, has come to me that I feel I do not completely yet understand or inhabit. And if I cannot figure it out, if I can't feel, if something does not feel sufficient, if my understanding or my uh, saturation of experience does not yet feel complete and it's something that matters, that will send me to poetry. And, you know, two things. I think what you just said uh, helps explain why poetry is being consumed, sought and consumed and appreciated um, in this whole, with this whole new magnitude, um, including by young people uh, in this world now. Um, you know, the Internet, which we don't think of as a... As a as a place where wisdom proliferates necessarily is full of poetry, right? Also, yes, it being is. down alongside a lot of careless use of language, there's <laughs> lots of poetry. Well, um, the internet is sort of like the world; it's it offers everything. It's everything. It's the canvas, <laughs> a new canvas for the human condition. Um, and and the and the other thing that I that I heard and what you just said and it's something I've been thinking about a lot. It speaks to something I've been thinking about really in the last years, certainly around the last few um, elections in our political life these last mm. years. Um, there's so much um, conversation and hand wringing around our f- crisis of facts. Right. That yes. how can right that how can we how can anything get better if we don't agree on the facts, which to me points at it's that in fact that we've had a truth crisis that's been building because we thought we could depend on facts to be the same thing as truth and what you just described, which is which is how. Were stories and and facts that that truth is not just about the thing that's said or the words that are used or the facts that are employed deployed, it is about how those things land in bodies, yes, and their wounds and their delights and their fears and their hopes. Um, yes, precisely. So, and when I said the internet had everything, I immediately thought afterwards, oh, it does not have touch. Mm. It does not have taste. Mm. It does not have the senses. And yet, of course, neither does a poem's ink on the page have any of those things. We bring them to it. And your, your very astute distinction between, you know, facts will not take any grip in the world unless the human being in whom they are living 
finds in them a useful and usable truth. And I don't want to sound purposive with that. It's not about purpose. It's not about engineering. Because what is often the most useful and usable truth is what answers the questions that cannot be solved by means of engineering or right. facts. You right. know, if you want to bake a cake, you go to a recipe. If you want to understand something about the last cake your mother ever made, you go to a poem. <laughs> You have this uh, video on TED um, about the art of the metaphor, which is so delightful. Thank you. And I guess it's been passed around a lot. It's gone around the world. And, you know, there's something you say in there, which is that, um, I mean, you, you kind of describe a metaphor talking in a way that conjures up a scene, a new way to talk about one thing by describing something else. But you make the point. I remember Elizabeth Alexander saying this to me years and years ago in one of the first poetry conversations I had. You know, she said, you know, and you say, a poem is not literally true. Right. So here's also part of the right. problem. Sometimes when we're saying the most important things, we're not dealing in facts at all. And that's partly the point. It's not about literal truth, but you said it said it gets you said it gets under our skin by ghosting right past the logical mind, which gets us into a lot of trouble. By thinking that facts alone can convey truth, for example. And you said it's like these are like metaphors are like handles on the door of what we can know and what we can imagine. Yes. Yes. So there's an example poem in there which I love. Um, it's by the Japanese poet Isa, and he says, um, On a branch floating down river, a cricket singing. And that is both, I think, you know, a portrait of something probably actually seen, but it is also a portrait of our entire existence. This is our situation. We are probably in peril. We're on a branch in the middle of a river. It's not a good place for a cricket to be, especially right. if there are some rapids ahead. Um, and yet, what does the cricket do? It sings, because that is its nature, because that is what it has to offer, because it delights in this moment, in the sun, uh, because it is on a branch and not yet drowned. And so I feel like our entire lives are in, you know, that haiku, 17 syllables in the Japanese, and I have never forgotten it. And I've never forgotten another haiku by Isa, um, very different but equally profoundly addressing our human condition in this moment now, written, you know, hundreds of years ago in a different language, a different culture, a different set of crises. He says, in this world, we walk on the roof of hell gathering blossoms. <laughs> and when I first encountered that haiku, I thought it was a portrait of a kind of bitterness that, you know, here we are right. on the roof of hell and what do we do? Right. And my feeling about it has completely changed over the years because I now feel, you know, every, every inch of ground on this earth has seen unfathomable suffering. Some of it human, some of it not human, but there is no inch of earth which is not soaked in suffering. Yeah. 
But there is also no inch of earth which is not soaked in joy and in beauty and in radiance. Hmm. I want to ask you about something... Um, I believe this was also something you said in another interview. It spoke to me. Um, So this is kind of a personal question, but you spoke of the sense of exile I have always felt. Mm. Do you know what I'm... Yeah. It it made me... And I think I I, I recognize that. Um, Mm -hmm. And I also wonder if... If that speaks to mm, holding a sense of the fullness of things, even that image of the cricket, right? That mm-hmm. there's a there's there's a there's a cost to that, or or a, there's a there's a there's a I don't cost is not the right word, but there's a way there's a way in which holding that or just d- d- desiring or committing to hold that it separates you from from the world's, from what is so around us, what we're so trained to want, which is to draw a drive to ease and clarity and convenience. Um, I'm trying to understand, are you saying that you feel I, I think when an exile to not give in to, <laughs> you know, evolution's well, desire that we I stay think, fat and happy? I don't know. I think I, I think that the thought I'm having has many layers, and there's a, there's a literal layer, which is, I mean, mm-hmm. you talking about growing up in New York City, but right. knowing yourself at home in a field. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I, I grew up in a very small town in the middle of America, and... And knew I didn't belong there. You know, I said I was, you <laughs> right. know, I was mistakenly a Parisian, yeah. mistakenly born in an Oklahoma body. <laughs> and um, so, but you know, so then living in many places. But I, but I don't think this has to be physical, like living. It's also living. It's like letting your mind go to many. Right. It's like taking in many worlds, really seeing how many worlds there are in the world, yeah. um, and yeah. that that also. In some ways, becomes a sense of exile from, from what we're summoned, how we're summoned to be, um, in culture. I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure if well, this makes I, sense. I think that probably almost every human being who does not live in a, an undamaged, Aboriginal culture, probably feels some sense of exile. I think, especially yeah. you know, in our in our American psyche, this is a human condition, it, and we're all alone with it. We all it are ubiquitous. feeling this, and we're alone with it. Yeah. Yes. And it is both. It can be seen as you know an unnecessary grief because, after all, you are entirely in your home life at every moment you are alive. You you know here you are. There's, there's nowhere to go. There's no one else to be, regardless yeah. of your emotional or intellectual <laughs> right. state right. at the time. Here we are. We're home. Yeah. Um, this is what it looks like. But also that sense of exile. I, I often think of the emotions as being information. They are needed information. Uh, they are our internal weather, but they are also our weather vane. And if you feel a sense of exile, it is telling you that there is something you need to do. 
to find your right home, mm-hmm. to find your sense of your own fullness of life. So I think what you were describing, at least for a moment in there, was you know the exile of feeling a little separate from the general culture of capitalism and seduction of advertising and gosh wasn't I supposed to want to be prom queen which I am also captive too Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm as seducible as the next person (laughs) so are we all Um, and and you know but if you translate that into we are creatures who long for beauty we are creatures who long for connection we are creatures who long for largeness You know, every ploy of the cheapest trick advertisement is based on a genuine longing. And, of course, the practice of Zen has a very interesting relationship to longing Mm. because it both works with it and also holds it a little lightly, a little... You know, it, it's like, why do we call, you know, Dante's great poem uh, the human comedy? It's because if you are seeing from the largest possible perspective, we are always living in both the level of the small, terrified, or, or lusting, or angry, creatures. But if you step back, it is a comedy because it can't turn out wrong. And this is a very controversial statement. You know, you can get a lot of trouble for talking about the perfection of things as they are when there is so much suffering. And yet, within the worldview of Buddhism, both are true. There is suffering, and it is our job to try to end it. And the perfection of things as they are is already here around us. We cannot escape from perfection. We cannot escape from suffering most of the time. Hmm. And they are not separate. How we feel them is the weather of this moment. And the spiritual tenor of who we are at this moment in our lives But I hope there is no human being who has not had one moment, at least, when they stood in the world undone by awe and radiance, and the small self vanishes, and you understand the world as immense and yours, and not yours. Right. Let me ask you, I mean, that brings us really full circle back to the notion of the human task being to acknowledge the fullness of things, Um, even if in moments and glimpses. um, As you look at our world now, so I want to kind of ask you this, you know, this hope, hopeful question. I mean, do you, are there ways, where, where do you look, or, or maybe even you're just going to tell me about something that happened yesterday for 10 minutes, but are there ways in which you see a capacity that is emergent or, or that is trustworthy to um, 
to to know that fullness, to acknowledge it, despite all the ways we flee it and deny it and shortchange it. Um, are there ways in which we, this we of now, um, that there's that this sense of the fullness of things is sneaking up on us? Hmm. Well, an odd word rose to my mind as you were asking that, which was um, vulnerability. That the great gate to abundance is simply to feel yourself able to be porous, Hmm. to be open to whatever is put in the bowl Hmm. that is yours to hold with your ten fingers and fifty-four bones. And that is abundance. The most bare, stripped existence, you know, the refugee camps, there is joy. There are children laughing. Almost always. Not always. Not always. Sometimes there is only tragedy. But most of the time where we live, there is something, as you say, some glimpse. And I remember during uh, some years ago, uh, there was the enormous earthquake in Haiti. And I remember watching a news anchor, an American news anchor, speaking about the fear of chaos and looting and cultural breakdown. And as that anchor said those words, What you could hear and see behind them was people who were sleeping out in the dark because there were being aftershocks and they weren't safe in the buildings. And what were they doing? They were singing. Hmm. What the reality was behind that newsperson's back was so completely different from what was being evoked by the description. They were singing. They were singing in the dark together. Yeah. Um, I, I would like for you to read, for you to read this time, Let Them Not Say, but I want to ask you if there's anything, you, anything else you'd like to read as well. Um, mm. Well, can I offer... I don't know if you'll be able to slip this in because it's so out of the flow of the conversation for me to offer it. But there is a one-line poem which I think does speak perhaps to what we were just talking Mm -hmm. about. Um, uh, It speaks to uh, the magnitude of our human hearts, spirits, souls, lives uh, in any circumstance. So the poem is one sentence long, and its title is Sentence in both the grammatical and the judicial sense. And it says, The body of a starving horse does not forget the size it was born to. The body of a starving horse does not forget the size it was born to. And you know, that is biologically true. The skeleton does not grow smaller. But in writing it, even though I thought I was writing 
what the words say. Something in me understood, even as they came from my pen, that what I was trying to evoke was this sense of the magnitude of a human being under any circumstance Mm -hmm. is there. It cannot be erased. It cannot be erased. Mm. Okay, so I will read, let them not say. But your reading will be so much better. (laughs) (laughs) It was a gift from you to me. And everybody And a gift from you to me. (laughs) Let them not say. Let them not say we did not see it. We saw. Let them not say we did not hear it. We heard. Let them not say they did not taste it. We ate. We trembled. Let them not say it was not spoken, not written. We spoke. We witnessed with voices and hands. Let them not say they did nothing. We did not enough. Let them say as they must say something. A kerosene beauty. It burned. Let them say we warmed ourselves by it, read by its light, praised, and it burned. Thank you. Thank you, Krista. I'm so grateful. You know, we could have had this conversation at a friend's house. Yes. Or in a park or in a restaurant. Mm. And I would be so happy just to be able to have such a conversation. Mm. Well, let's let's plan to have conversations in the good old fashioned flesh. Um I'm next I'm, time you're in Mill Valley. Next time next I'm in Mill Valley. <laughs> yes. And um I'm also glad you know, this was, we had starts and stops, but I think this was exactly the right moment to have this conversation. I'm so grateful. Thank um, you. And that's also that, that's the comedy, right? Like, yes. The, the universe knew. And um, so, so just thank you. I'm very grateful for you. And, uh, and I know that this will be so gratefully received. Um, well, I thank you. And I also thank all those names that you read at the end of every program. Well, they are wonderful. Um, some of them are here listening. Yes, and some of them will do things to, to, to this that I will never know about. That's and some right. of them I've met on emails or, or, yeah. or the pre, pre, pre-tech meeting. And yeah. I'm just, you know, On Being is a remarkable project. Mm. And you have brought me great joy and great wisdom and great solace at times when I desperately needed the company. So well, thank, thank you. you. That means a lot to us. Thank you. Um, all right. Blessings. I think I'm going to hand you back to Zach. Okay. Okay. And you're in. Take of care. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye.